today on the podcast, hashtag big law meets hashtag free Britney. Or to put it another way, what, if anything, is big law doing to help its wealthy clients avoid winding up in a, as Britney would say, toxic situation? Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. That, of course, was Britney Spears in Happier Times. Now, as you're probably aware, she's deep in litigation to try to get out of the conservatorship she's been in for over a decade. It's a difficult time for all parties involved, and it's all playing out in the courtroom and in public. Today, we're going to find out how the estate lawyers for some of the country's wealthiest people are reacting to all this drama. I spoke to two attorneys who work on trust and estates at two big law firms, and they both said that the Britney Spears situation is an example of everything going totally wrong. The publicity of it would sort of be a worst case scenario for most of my clients, kind of a nightmare to have everything out there. Um, so you know, I feel bad for her and her family to be going through this. That was Barbara Grayson. She's a partner at Wilkie, Farr & Gallagher, who works on trust and estates in Chicago. Grayson says, although it would have taken a lot of foresight back when Spears was much younger, some simple estate planning tools like a power of attorney or a revocable trust could have helped her family avoid all of this. Instead, when Spears began suffering mental health problems, the courts had to get involved. With a conservatorship, even if it's voluntary, like I, as I'm reading from what I can tell online, this was voluntary. Brittany signed up for this. Once the court's involved, the court says when it's done. Um, even though she voluntarily went into it, she can't voluntarily take it back. And I don't think she understood that. Um, when And so that's a challenge, right? Uh, whereas with a if she had set up a revocable trust or a power of attorney, she would still have the ability to revoke it later. Josh Rubenstein, a partner at the firm Catton in New York, says it's unfortunate but not surprising that Spears, at her age, hadn't done the kind of estate planning that could have prevented this situation. What's different about Britney Spears is that normally guardianships are required for minors or for old people. And, uh, you know, people my age who do planning uh, what's the expression? You're playing the back nine. You're not playing the front nine. So, uh, yeah, you ought, to, you ought to have those those documents in place. But if you're 27 years old, you may not even have a will, let alone uh, health care documents. But he said there are still ways Spears' conservatorship could have been structured that would have made it less likely that she'd find herself in the mess she's currently in. So when we get involved with that, what we try to do is have a time-delineated guardianship. I think one of, I'm not familiar with the specific facts of Britney Spears' case, but it sounds to me like it was permanent, and now they have to go and undo it. I, in, in a case like hers, I like to do it the other way. Say, so I appoint you for one year, and then it terminates unless I need it. And, and then let, let, let the inquiry be, should I put it back in place again as opposed to should I get rid of it? These are supremely difficult situations that get at questions of human frailty and fallibility. And for the clients of these big law attorneys come with the added complicating factor of lots and lots of money. Grayson says, as difficult as this can be, it's definitely possible to reach a good outcome. I worked on a guardianship where um, an adult child developed schizophrenia. 
and the father was appointed guardian um, for his estate to manage the assets. And But that was very different. The son's assets were largely a result of large gifts from the dad before they knew that the illness was going to happen. And so, you know, didn't see any issues or a need for a trust before, right? And then there was kind of a crisis situation. Um, the, in that case, the father wasn't paid for acting. Um, and he just did it. And often he paid for the medical care kind of on his own even. Like, I mean, so it, it very different from this case, right? And in that case, the father and son had a really good relationship. And so um, the son would provide input when he could, so again, that's kind of um, that type of illness um, goes through periods where functioning pretty well and then just not, right? And so that worked pretty well, even though the court was involved, there was not the lot of all the drama that you see here. Um, so nobody, it didn't get picked up by the press or anything. Um, and, and that worked just fine. Working on these kinds of issues for your clients involves a lot of skills that they don't teach you in law school. Rubenstein says flat out this requires deep psychological knowledge along with a mastery of contracts and the tax code. And you need to speak to different people differently. Some people like it when you're direct. Some people like it when you beat around the bush and lead them there. But one thing's for sure. Nobody likes advice they don't want to hear unless you've listened to them at painful lengths in detail. They will find every excuse in the book not to listen to me. And the easiest excuse is you don't understand. And the only way you can overcome that is to sit back and let them talk and let them tell you the whole story. And it doesn't matter that you know they're wrong. It doesn't matter that you know the punchline. You have to let them get the whole thing out so you've heard every last bit of it. And then instead of saying you're wrong, you say, thank you so much for letting me know all that. That's really interesting. Have you considered this? Grayson, for her part, couldn't agree more. I come from a family too, uh, and so <laughs> I understand family dynamics, I think. But you do have to have a sort of uh, a high emotional IQ to really be good at this. One of the things I think about is how do I teach my team who works for me to do this? Because I don't teach you in law school. And a lot of times for these sensitive conversations, the clients don't necessarily want a big group of people in the room, right? Um, and it's one of those things where you have to go through it. Um, and every time you do, you become better at it. But beyond training new lawyers, another challenge is that trust in estates isn't the type of work that big law firms usually want to do. Rubenstein says a lot of these firms got out of this area of the law in the 1970s and 80s when their clients, private family-held companies, either went public or were acquired by public companies. And of course, when a company goes public, it doesn't really need a trust in a state's lawyer anymore. But he says there are still a lot of privately held companies out there, which means there's still a lot of business owners who need help keeping their personal and professional finances in order. So one of the reasons the firms like Hatton have always um, maintained a very large trust in estates practice is that we view our trust in estates work not as drawing wills and trusts for people, which of course we do, but as being the port of first call for their business activities. Grayson says the way she makes trust in estates work relevant is to integrate it with the other work her firm is doing and to act almost as wealthy families' very own personal general counsel. I think a lot of times uh, large law firms have gotten out of this area because they haven't found a way to make it connected to the rest of the firm. 
So if you have a trust and estates practice that's very siloed, that is just writing wills and trusts, that is not connected to the rest of the firm, it's sort of hard to figure out why in the world you would keep it. Uh, Wilkie historically has represented family offices and wealthy families and found a way to make it relevant to the rest of the firm. So for example, in Chicago, my practice is very tied into the rest of the Chicago practice. A lot of the families I represent, um, we represent the companies they own in litigation or corporate work, um, or they're on the boards of some of our other clients. So there's a lot of overlap, it's very intertwined. In fact, Rubenstein says some firms are beginning to think this way too, and are getting back into the trust and estates fields that they left several decades ago. Several of the white shoe firms have very quietly beefed up their either non-existent or two or three person accommodation trust and estates practice to have very credible practices. And you know, firms like Catton, which have a 20 year head start, could have your lunch eaten very, very quickly by these mega powerful firms if we don't stay ahead of it. That was Josh Rubenstein, a partner at the law firm Cadden in New York, as well as Barbara Grayson, a partner at Wilkie, Farr and Gallagher in Chicago. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz, our editor, Jessica Coombs, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. I'm at David B. Schultz. That's B as in, well, Britney Spears. Thanks a lot, everyone, for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.